0: UX Podcast episode one hundred and ninety This is UX Podcast. I'm Pat Axball,
1: and I'm James Roy Lawson.
0: And we're balancing business, technology, and people every other Friday from Stockholm, Sweden, with listeners in 175 countries from Italy, France, Germany, Lithuania, Poland, Portugal, Denmark, Turkey, Finland, to Norway.
1: That was a very Which long happen- list, for. this <laughs> yeah, week. Yeah, it
0: <laughs> just happens to be the countries helping us out, and the raging wildfires uh, right now in Sweden.
1: It's sweet, yeah, and Sweden's not mm. the only country affected by wildfires, exactly. as we speak. It's
0: hot all over the world.
1: It is hot indeed. Well, um, in this episode for you, episode 190, we're bringing you a link show. Now, a link show for those of you who haven't listened to a show of this type before is where Per and I have found some articles on the internet for you um, that we think are interesting and we'd like to talk to you about or talk with you about. Um, We've got two articles for you in this episode.
0: And those two articles are Thinking in Triplicate by Erica Hall over at Mule Design and uh, maintain a professional web network throughout your UX career by Jessica Ivins UX designer
1: so let's dive into the first article
0: so thinking in triplicate and uh, Erica has subtitled this piece you have to see the whole story to make it come true uh, and Erica starts off bit by, by exposing the problem of us all as ux designers having this high and mighty vision of changing the world with human-centered design and realizing now uh many years later that the world hasn't become better and especially of course if you reference the united states a lot of people are upset with the state of things there and uh, especially probably the president and and so people have realized that uh maybe it wasn't so good uh so designers as a group must be either incompetent, powerless, or delusional, is what she's saying. Delusional, that would yeah. be this, uh So how do we even start addressing this? And she goes through some myths, and she talks about how uh, design is only as human-centered as the business model allows, of course, which is something I think we've talked a lot about on the podcast, is most companies come to a point when you've had a great idea, a solution to a problem, and you implement that, but the company has to make money. And then it becomes a trade-off between making money and delivering the best solution. And sometimes you just need to make more money thinking that that will allow you to make better solutions. And sometimes people just go down the wrong path. Mm. Uh, so even if you are human-centered to begin with, there are so many other trade-offs you have to make as a company.
1: Yeah, and we, we talk as well about how we, some companies can lose they, they, they lose their special thing, their, their mission over time. We've talked yeah. about how that um, is, is one of the big challenges of business, maintaining mm. why you exist over a long period. Mm. Um, so you and her, you the, myths that
0: she's, the myths that she mentions, the, I'll read all three of them, a good experience is good for the user, a good exper- experience is good for the business, and a good experience is good. I think there was a and good,
1: a, in, the, in, the, in that one there, I think it was good mm. she makes the analogy with um, something that's nice to eat doesn't necessarily mm. m- uh, make it healthy.
0: Right. That's perfect. Exactly. Mm. And sometimes we have great experiences, but we actually regret re- regret them afterwards as well. Yeah, I shouldn't have bought that thing. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, so yeah, design design is not separate from business. Design is the business. This is something also I think, and that's sort of why we came up with the term UX back in the day. We realized it's bigger than. It's bigger than building this small thing within the company. We have to take into account everything that's happening around the company, everything that's happening around the individual uh and so we everybody was saying we need a seat at the table, and essentially, we actually don't need a seat at the table. we need to be the table. we need to be the thing that is in on is in everyone's mind uh and but what Erica then goes on to say is we need to evolve from user centered design to value centered design, where you think about the value that we're delivering not only to uh, people who are customers probably or, but also to the company and then also wider, broader than that. Uh, but then she also has a fantastic list, and this is my favorite part of the article I think, the list uh, where she lists that arguing about the symptoms exasperates the condition. And exasperates is a word I don't use quite often so mm-hmm. I'm going to explain it to people as well as it increases so it actually makes things worse. It increases the severity of the condition. So we have all these professional conversations that are dominated by low-level arguments about terminology and artifacts. So we keep arguing with each other about what design really is, what UX really is. Uh, and my favorite one probably is, attention gravitates towards incremental refinements rather than solving real problems. So we're just refining things all the time without thinking about the bigger picture.
1: I think we're also re, hmm. we're, we're trying to redefine things constantly and reinvent things constantly. Yeah. And a lot of time, the, the work's already been done, especially in the field of design or economics. The the yeah. answer's are already out there. Um, there was a third. I think there's another a third myth there, which um, was w- I really liked um, was um, a, uh, the myth of g- of a good experience being good. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you've designed a system, you know, if you design a system to do bad things, the system is bad, yeah, irrespective exactly. of how it makes people feel. Um, exactly.
0: The experience for us as designers is a tool. Yeah, and the, I mean the effect and the outcome and the impact can be vastly different things. Mm. Uh, and here, and then she goes on to make this point of how how complex it is. And I I know that uh, this is one point that you have issues with. So I, I'm going to say it. I'm gonna, this is her quote: "Value to the user is qualitative. Value to the business is quantitative. So in order to make holistic decisions, you have to create a representation that makes that translation between." the users' or the person's or the human's qualitative experience to quantitative data that usually the company is measured upon.
1: Yeah, and I did, I did, I did get a bit hung up on just that mm. line because, um, you know, we, we, in economic terms, value is um, uh, quantitative. You, you you can measure it, and, and um, in economic theory, the, the idea is there that you know you have a limited amount of of time On money. You have resources, but your time is ultimately the, the, the thing you have most of, and you decide to do things with your time, um, and and those choices, I think anything you can use to extrapolate um, value. Mm. Um, so so an example would be there. I mean, if I if I give you your mobile phone for an hour, and you spent forty five minutes of that hour on Facebook, and then fifteen minutes of it on Instagram. I can extrapolate that Facebook is worth three times as much um, as Instagram.
0: Right, and, and, and my objection to that would be that maybe that I would value the 15 minutes on Instagram higher than the ones I had on Facebook. So from my perspective as a human being, I'm not aware of what I'm doing or, or how I'm distributing the value that you're defining as an economist.
1: Mm. Well, then, I, but then mm. what I say to that is that we've got, um, you, make, you make the information, you make choices given the information you've got. And, mm. and a lot of economic theory um, requires perfect market information, which we talked about, I can't remember which episode, but a long time ago. Um, and a lot of time, we don't have perfect information. We don't know everything about everything. Mm. Um, and that does cloud your, your, your um, ability to make good choices. Um and, yeah, um, and that's, that's the case with some of these tools we use. We don't, these dark patterns going on, these things going on that kind of trick us into using stuff that maybe we, 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 we aren't really aware of. So you, you aren't fully aware of the price you're paying.
0: Right, exactly. That's really interesting because then that means that it should be uh, our job as designers to make consumers more aware of how, what their costs are, how they are choosing, uh, so that they can make that decision uh, more consciously.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think one, mm, of, the, mm. one of the things that really has become broken um, from both a design perspective and, and to an extent from an economic perspective um, is that we're, nowadays we're paying for way too many things with, with, with non-tangible or highly abstracted method of, of, mm. of payments. I mean, it used to be the case you know we uh, or you you you'd use money real money or, or way back we'd be using physical things to pay for stuff so you'd 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 trot down to the market with your your two pigs and and you'd come back from the market with a cow um mm-hmm. and you know then it's really easy to say that um just that, at that day for you um a cow was worth um at least as much or slightly more than two pigs because you felt happy about doing that deal yeah um, so, I can work out the value of a cow and I can work out the value of a pig, and, and, and everyone's happy. And it's very transparent. Mm. We know what they are. And we're, you know, we've, we presume we know that they're all healthy and we know a lot about the, the way the market works. We've been there before. Mm. It's very, very, very transparent and we, we, we can, it's tangible. Whereas nowadays, we're, we're paying with stuff with, with our personal data. An unknown amount of personal data, especially if you're outside of the GDPR. And, and also the other, EU.
0: other people's data. I'm thinking of every time every time I log into uh, yeah, the yes. LinkedIn app, the LinkedIn app asks me, uh, "I want to, they want access to my address book so they can see if my friends are on LinkedIn. I don't want to give them access to that because that is a form of payment. And I realize that. But, of course, everyone doesn't realize what they're paying with. No, you, it's very, very They're actually very paying... Hidden. You could be paying with your friend's data. Yeah, which, which is it's, awful. It's awful,
1: and it's very, very yeah. hidden. So the, the mm. price you pay in those kind of situations mm. is is mm. very, very abstract and non tangible. And sometimes you're paying with your time, um, whether you realise it or not. You're paying with your bandwidth mm. of your of your internet, your your CPU, because mm. things have, are doing and stuff in the background that you didn't know it was it was doing. It's doing calculations on behalf, like you know, BitTorrents and stuff. You know, you're sharing, um, you're sharing files across the network. You know as part mm. of the payment um or even sometimes you're using a product to teach it to do the job better you're teaching algorithms, mm. which is part of the price um that it's using your behavior to then learn and do something else. All these things are part of the price of a product, but it's not pigs anymore it's not cows it's not coins it's yeah. it's it's stuff that's very difficult for humans to to right. to understand
0: and in line with the backlash that we're i mean. Everything that's going on now with everybody hating on social media and Facebook and everything is that people are now realizing that they what they've paid with. So they're realizing the value of what they've paid with after the fact that they've paid.
1: Oh, they're sta- yeah, they're starting to be yeah. aware that there are mm. there are other f- that things aren't necessarily mm. free, as in free, as in don't pay any hard yeah. earned cash for. Mm. But um, you know, I used to I used to say I used to herald the internet as being the the thing that would deliver perfect market information to us. Um, I, I still think it's a fantastic tool to allow that. Mm. But what we're seeing now, in the last, especially in the last few years, is the whole fake news thing. That, and connected to that, that suddenly now the the ability to find out the truth has become very, very muddied. And and mm. I think we're we're almost doing the opposite now. That the internet's making, um, taking us further away from perfect market mm. information, because there's so little. This 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 so little. Um, it's, it's sort of easy to, to believe stuff.
0: Right. And I used to even argue that some of the racism that was going on, it was good that that was becoming transparent, that that was a problem that we could actually work with. But now you can't even be sure that the racism is real because it can be automated. It can be bots. And it's all about, it's a warfare on a different scale, uh, which is just horrifying.
1: <laughs> and also the segmentation going on in a way mm-hmm. which, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, y- y- it's not, it's not perfect information. I mean, people aren't sharing. Ev- mm. Not everything is available to mm. everyone. You're seeing things targeted. You're seeing things, you know, exploiting certain mm. groups of users. Um, this is why, kind of, like, you know, betting companies can cause people to spend like $1,200 a day on, like, on, on gambling stuff, and then, you know, end up going bankrupt or, or or committing suicide or something at the end of it all. I mean, that's that's mm. that's evil and that's bad. Um, and you know, you shouldn't be part of designing things that. That that allow prices to be hidden so deeply in a product um, Mm. that you can't understand or be able to control the price you pay. Exactly.
0: So back to Erica's article. There's actually I mean, so if you are a designer who wants to do good, who wants to fight all these issues, uh, she says the fundamental challenge we are up against is that doing the right thing well is generally more expensive and time consuming. Than doing the least you can get away with and figuring out how to defend it. So people have all these sorts of biases they come up with uh, when they do bad things because everyone else does it that way or it's the only way we can make money and uh, it's 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 just plain awful. And but now we're realizing that and and what Eric is saying we're measuring the wrong thing. So we're just measuring too few things. Uh, and then she goes on to mention the triple bottom line, which now alludes to the title of our article.
1: Thinking in triplicate. Tri- yeah.
0: yeah. The triple bottom line was coined in 94 by John Elkington as a way to improve outcomes by changing how we measure them. So he, the idea was to line up profit, people, and planet on the same balance sheet. Hmm. Uh, and it, as as beautiful as that idea is, uh, it proved to be very difficult, of course. But what Erica goes on to do is how could we, instead of a balance sheet, how could we maybe visualize that? How could you visualize what I then call as well profit, people, and planet in a diagram? And she goes on to show how, well, a tool we're quite familiar with is uh, story mapping uh, and customer journey mapping. And she has a piece that I'm actually going to jump over, but it's interesting about Kurt Vonnegut who identified six archetypical stories from Western literature. And that's really interesting. But what she goes on to do is Uh, actually show how you you could map out. You do a a journey map for a user, and along the touch points, which she she doesn't want to call touch points, she wants to call them boops. Mm. Uh, You map out, so here's something that benefits the user. How does that benefit or make it worse for the company? And so you try to map out this value exchange of every boop along the storyline. Uh, and I kind of like that concept where you actually start thinking about how much do we have to invest to make it better for the user here, and are we prepared to invest that? So then you're actually making a more conscious decision. It's it's usually what sto- story maps are used for, but you don't usually map out ar- across time the uh, story map for the company as well.
1: Yeah. So there was the first. So mm. the the mm. first of the triple is mm. the customer story. Yeah. And then the the second of the triple is the the company story.
0: Yes. Exactly.
1: And then the third one.
0: And the third one is when you actually think about, so how does this exchange affect everything around and outside the company? Uh, And I call this planet because uh, from an ethical perspective, I always think about, so are we now harming society and planet in a way by doing this, by encouraging people to, to ride more in cars or whatever. And so how can we counter even that effect Within the company uh, so if you map that out it's all about feeling as a designer i I feel that I want to do the right thing so I'm trying to do the right thing by the company the right thing by the human beings who are stakeholders in the company inside and outside and what is outside the company how are we affecting everyone else are we creating um, uh, are we creating racism are we allowing racism on our platform I mean I know Erica likes to talk about Twitter and how that, how Nazis are on Twitter, uh, or why are we allowing that? How does that hurt society? Uh, so we want to think about everything that is outside of what you intended to solve as a designer, mm. and that, work that into the design process as well to think about those things. And so, I mean, uh, Erica admits that. I mean, this is of course an oversimplified diagram. There are lots of other things that feed into it, but it gives us something to talk about. It gives us something to in meetings and in the teams and at companies, talk about mm. what else is going on that we should probably be accounting for and how could we find out more about how we are affecting everyone, yeah. both inside and outside the company.
1: Yeah. I mean, in, 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 in economics terms, we, well, economics, you call these externalities. All oh, right. Yes, um, exactly. Yeah. Um, these are all the things that, well, mm. you, you have negative and positive mm. externalities, mm. Um, but these are the things um, that are not directly included in the the transaction or the price um, and, and the transaction that's gone on, um, you know sometimes it's not really a big a problem, but sometimes they're they're big prob- big problematic ones and kind of planet level ones. Um, but externalities, because they they aren't they can't be baked into the price. Uh, generally, this is where governments come in. This is this is where economic theory allows um, governments to intervene in economics hmm. because economics can't deal with externalities because the incentive isn't there for companies to deal with it. It's, it's external, exactly like um, um, Erica says, that this isn't stuff on the balance sheet. Hmm. Um, and, and the idea there of trying to include it on the balance sheet is a, is a nice and noble attempt, but it's very, very difficult because there's no incentive for the, the companies to actually include them on their balance sheets. The only time that it starts happening is if governments maybe force them to include them on their balance sheets.
0: And I an mean, example of that, I guess, then would be GDPR. That actually EU decides exactly that this is what yeah
1: exactly that's a good example mm-hmm. of it. It's mm-hmm. the, there is where um, you know the 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 market has failed to to internalise um, you know the, the the cost we're paying via data mm-hmm. and the and the misuse of data um, under the surface. So governments have stepped in there to um, to highlight that externality, um, which in is both a positive and a negative externality. I mean, some aspects of of, of data use um, is positive. For, for society as a whole and for the individual. Um, but it can very easily also be negative. So, so to try and internalize that ex- externality, and GDPR has been brought in to make us more information aware and, p- mm. privacy, and design by, um, privacy by design and, and so on. Um, right. so, it's, so it's not destroying our lives on the planet in the same way.
0: Right. Uh, but it's really hard then to define, I mean, what would my responsibility as a designer be? Uh, you're saying that, yes, we can't, really take responsibility for that as a company always, but I guess some startups would like to see themselves as taking responsibility for that. Mm -hmm. And on the other end, we have this problem of, uh, at least in certain countries, uh, where companies are becoming so big, so they're giving donations to campaigns, which then means that legislation won't work against those companies, so they can keep doing the bad things that they've been doing.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, you've got to, mm. yeah, you can't, um, mm. the, whole, the whole definition of externalities is the company isn't going to be interested. So you've got yeah. to do something that makes them interested. Um, and me and you have both talked about how, mm. and I think this is this is what one of the things that um, um, Erica's third graph there alludes mm. to, is, um, you know, if if you do graph this out, if you do graph out the externalities, mm. um, then, then basically, if there's too much um, above the curve, so if you're if you're high, if you're ending up um, with too many things that are causing too many externalities at the company you are, don't work there, kind of thing. Yeah, right. I mean, and shearer, mm. you know, you don't want to be there. You want to be mm. down there. But effectively, you don't want to choose to be at that company if mm. they're if they're creating too many externalities. Mm. You should be somewhere else. Um, but then also, maybe you should we should lobby. We should use our powers to to um, single out or or or, mm. or expose some of these externalities, these things that are happening. Right. In a, in, a, in a calm and rational way that we, some of, many of us, many of us designers have mm. the ability to actually understand and explain what's mm. happening.
0: That would actually be like being a whistleblower. So you'd actually be someone who exposes what is going on to the world so that people would actually Call for more action on whatever is happening. Yeah,
1: I mean it's, it's like being an environmentalist, mm. but you're, yeah. but from a you know you're a designer mentalist <laughs> that you're you're showing you're exposing how mm. how the design is actually mm. effective. And, we, and there's a lot of us do do a lot of work to do with you know we're exposing dark patterns or or yeah. data misuse or um, you know bad behaviour by companies from a design perspective. We're doing that. Mm. I think I think we just need to do it um, in a way that's not mm. abusive. Um, yeah. But instead, is informative and 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 um, educational,
0: right? And that adds to the market information that you were talking about earlier. So that now we're educating consumers in
1: yeah well, what,
0: what, what is harming them and how they could change their behavior. Although
1: I think in the first instance we're mm. we're educating peers, yeah, because one of the one of the most important things is to make sure you know every every um, generation of designers that comes in um, after us um are better equipped hmm. to 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 avoid creating systems that do bad things hmm. um you know we we want to be able to sit there and and highlight that i mean you know you don't want to you don't want to work with a with a, a ship that's leaking oil all, the, all over the place exactly and and whether that's us as individual that stops it leaking or whether it's pressure from us um on government or organis- international bodies to make sure that there's um, systems in place to stop it happening, mm. then all of this will make a, a better world. But it's not exactly like you said in the beginning. This is really, this is not a straightforward issue. It's, mm. um, you know, it's, it's complex both mm. from a design perspective and from an economics perspective right. and, and from a societal perspective. Um, and it,
0: and I, I love the article. I mean, it's a great start. Uh, I mean, it's long. It's a long read. You should go read it. But it's, it's a great start at, about how do we start even talking about these issues so that we have artifacts to talk around.
1: And long, we may, long may we be internalizing our externalities. <laughs> our second article today, um, Maintain a professional network throughout your UX career by um, Jessica Ivins. Now, Jessica, um, she starts off the article here by, by saying that she um, spoke with a designer friend um, who's struggling to find a a, a job. Um, she's moved to a new city, she's applying for companies, um, what Jessica says, cold, as in she submits an application and just hopes they contact her and bring her in for an interview. Now, um, in her previous city, you know, before she moved, um, this friend of Jessica's had and she had a good network, lots of um, designers who were friends, and used her professional network to find job job opportunities. But in the new place she lives in, she doesn't have any friends really in design, and doesn't have those kind of that networking relationships to help her get a foot into the um, to to the 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 job um, world or career in that city. So she's relying on cold applications. Um, and this reminded Jessica about the importance of building and maintaining a professional network throughout your career. You don't really know when you're gonna need no. it. So there are a couple of aspects to the article. One of them is, is basically how Jessica's experiment um, about how to um, maintain um, a professional network. Um, and then another one is, is the decision about how, uh, which and what people to include um in your network this is something i know that i mean me and you pair of thoughts about our own networks we have um we have a little bit of a, mm-hmm. a, a differing or we used to anyway have a differing approach to how we maintain our our networks i don't know you, know, you mm-hmm. at least previously you 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 add everyone and anyone to your networks that want to be added
0: ah you think that way yeah okay so yeah yeah, yeah. But that yeah. kind of thing yeah yeah <laughs> i don't think then i do yeah
1: yeah and I know you did for for phase anyway you did the similar yeah. kind of thing on facebook you added yeah. people who wanted to be added um mm. which which from a building a network point of view seems really you know intro really really good uh, whereas I've had the attitude where um, you know, I I only add people on LinkedIn. A lot of this, I think, we're going to we're alluding to talking about LinkedIn. Um, I don't think Jessica actually mentions LinkedIn in her um, in her article. Oh, she does. Yeah, she does. Yeah, she does. Yeah. Yeah. I use time. Um, mm. Use time to each Thursday. She uses time to browse mm. LinkedIn. Mm. Um, but but LinkedIn is the place where all this networking really goes on nowadays. At least in in Europe and in America and in many other countries. Mm. Um, and um, what what I the approach I take is I I add people who have I've I've had a personal interaction with um yeah. now sometimes that means i've met them in person um sometimes um, it means we've had mail conversations or or um uh, more extended interchanges somewhere um whatever platform it's on um so i feel like i've 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 i've, I've made a connection um yeah. so i generally I, I i know both me and you get quite a lot of um, um connection requests and i i don't accept them all um because a lot, I just I have no I have no personal connection, um, so I I, I don't um, I don't say yes to it. I, I wait until I've had more of a personal connection before maybe adding mm. uh, people. No, it's it's interesting because then <coughs> I would
0: argue maybe this LinkedIn connection is the first step to gaining a personal connection. So you would you could say that if you are fully digital, then maybe this is how you start talking. Yeah,
1: exactly. But then you then yeah. then I suppose the argument there would be that you'd mm-hmm. you'd have a conversation first before adding them.
0: Right. And, and then you would say, and then you would start setting up constraints for how to contact you because I'm, what I'm thinking is not everybody is aware even of how LinkedIn works. So if somebody uh, sees me on stage or, or uh, reads an article of mine and wants to connect with me, then they're thinking, I, the way to connect is go to LinkedIn. Yeah, but it doesn't. Have they don't know that I could talk to me on Twitter or send me an email. They they think yeah. this is how I do. Yeah, or even email. I mm. mean,
1: there's plenty mm. of places to yeah. do it. <clears throat> but what what mm. um, one thing I do like about um, Jessica's article here is that um, mm. she's she's made she started off with this experiment about um, about um, oh, she she made a develop, oh, she developed mm. a set of guidelines for making new connections. A bit like we're just talking about now, how we decide to, to add people or or uh, build, keep a relationship. Um, mm-hmm. And Jessica wrote down, I think it's four, four points that she wants to add. People who do the type of design work she do, she does, um, has careers outside of UX design. So, like you know, meets yeah. a financial planner, wants to knowing um, uh, to stay in touch, and perhaps one day that company might be interested in hiring um, Jessica for for UX position. And so it's built, it's growing your network. Um, and she, another point was that they live in her current um, geographical area. Um, and also then ones that live in different cities or even different countries. So, so Jessica was really good in writing down, here's some bullets, here's some points of what I want to, uh, what I want to, um, focus yeah. on while building this network. And I think this, this, like this is really nice. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of us could really benefit from, from, um, uh, making it clear to ourselves what we want from networks mm-hmm. and the attributes, the qualities that we want from our network. Um, and, and
0: yeah, it's it's thinking about the outcome. What outcome would I like from these interactions? I mean, it's it's beautiful. I love that approach. Yeah, uh,
1: it's it's nice. Yeah. Um, so that was some good tips on on who to include and, and why. Um, mm. And but her experiment though um, was to contact one person a week. So so in Jessica's case, she's already got a network. Um, she's already kind of following people or connected to people. So mm. she wanted to try and keep her um, network warm. So this is this is the next phase. This is you've built a network or you, you don't have to be massive but you've built your network. And then she decided she was going to contact one design professional every week in her network. And she set yeah. aside 30 minutes for this task every Thursday. And made it like calendar booking for it. So she'd look in her LinkedIn feed and, and read things. Maybe they're sharing blog posts, they're writing news about organizations. Maybe they've got promotions uh, um, or there's a conference coming up or they're speaking. They're, they've done something they're proud of themselves. There's, there's plenty of things you can see in the, in the LinkedIn feed. Um, and then she'd choose one person or note down one person from that feed to contact. And she'd send them a brief message. So here mm-hmm. it says, if they shared a blog post on LinkedIn, I tell them why I appreciate their blog post. If they share about a conference they're speaking at, I congratulate them and tell them what's interesting about their presentation. Now that these first bits really, really good. What what Jessica's doing here is she's praising people. Now mm. you're the coach. Tell people why that's good.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, what it makes me think of is how important it is to say thank you because people are sharing stuff so much stuff online these days for free, and just that. Act of saying thank you and reaching out to people and saying you did something good that I actually had use for, and I appreciate it. That's one of the greatest gifts you can give. And and uh, I actually wrote an article similar to that uh, a couple of years ago. Take one hour. Take thank one person each week. Yes. Uh, And if you do that, you yourself feel better, and you give so much value to the person you're talking to. So. They're going to remember you forever. I mean, some of the emails and and, and things we get from for the podcast, emails I get from the Watercress I've written, where people actually reach out. Oh, I loved what you wrote here, and 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 I, I use this in this way. Those are the emails I save, because uh, those are the really really valuable ones to me personally as a human being. And
1: those are the network connections you add and you build on later because you've, yes. you've been touched. You've had a personal relationship mm-hmm. there or the start of one, and you felt appreciated. Yeah. You've you mm-hmm. maybe even, I mean, mm-hmm. whether it's, maybe you felt insecure about one of these things, mm-hmm. talking at the conference and so on. So, so maybe this mm-hmm. kind of reply back from someone boosting you is exactly what you were hoping for and looking for at oh, that point. Oh, well, that's a
0: really good point you made there. You made it, Maybe you felt insecure because... People always assume that the people putting themselves out there are sort of leadership material and they, they know what they're doing. But most of us have no idea what we're doing. And it's just so comforting to get that feedback and sort of that's almost what we feed upon to actually did I do something good? or what, I mean, what did people think of, think of that? You, so, you need that feedback, yeah. however experienced you are, even if you've done it for so many years. Mm. You need it.
1: So, so then Jessica goes on. Mm. Um, she's congratulating. She's giving praise, which is excellent. Um, and then she follows it by saying, I mean, mm. how are you doing? And yeah. people respond to her. It sometimes takes a, mm. a, a few weeks to respond. I mean, I know that. Mm. We're guilty. Mm. We've had email, email, email conversations with, with Jessica. And, mm. and yeah, I, I must admit, it's taken me sometimes a, a while to respond. <laughs>
0: uh, I, I thought that as well. That was so funny when I read that line. <laughs> oh yeah, that was probably us. <laughs> we took so...
1: <laughs> oh, but, but, but yeah, but it, sometimes it, it does take time. Um, but she said it works. People respond and they, they say how they're doing mm. um, and ask how she's doing. Mm. So, so you, know, you've got, you create ping pong. You're backwards and forwards. And this, this does mm. eventually open up the opportunity to maybe ask that next question. Oh, yeah, no, well, I'm, I'm, I'm moving city. I'm changing job. I'm looking for new opportunities. Do you know mm. someone? Well, wonderful how this can work. And, and it's mm. relatively cheap in the amount of time you have to invest in order to maintain relationships, exactly. the professional relationships.
0: Uh, and one key point about, uh, because she says it so well, sometimes it takes weeks to get a response. It's really important when you're doing this because sometimes you feel worried that you're upsetting someone by contacting them or you're, you're disturbing them in some way. And then they don't respond for weeks. And you think, oh, my God, what did I do? Never, never take offense if someone takes long to respond uh, yourself. Uh, it's That's just the way it is. We, t- we have a lot of channels in these days, all of us. And times we sometimes we miss messages. Sometimes they fall to the bottom of the inbox. And sometimes we just don't have time and we find them and we respond and t- sometimes we don't respond And then it would be of course okay also it's maybe just, just send a reminder uh, if you feel comfortable with that but never never feel bad about not getting a response, uh, that's really important I think.
1: and I think I'd add something here as well is is mm. um, always be personal, as in don't, if you're making this kind of contact for your network, don't template it mm. don't, don't kind of create a bit of text and then Cut and paste and put it in every. Th- oh yeah, every yes. Thursday, every week mm. when you reach mm. out, mm. don't don't automate this because that's. Um, it, it gets noticeable really quick and um, it doesn't work. A lot of these people know each other, so they'll. Oh well, it's <laughs> not just that. I mean, it, it really it, you can feel it. I mean, we, we, yeah, you notice know, it. Right. And yeah. but you know, when you do have that dialogue, starting the conversation, then it's it's, um, it's much. Well, the more real it is, genuine and personal, then mm. the more mileage you get from it. And what what um, what Jessica uses at the the yeah. end. Um, it's, uh, I'm going to read a little bit of this one too because it's, um, it's it's a good analogy. Um, she says, "I've realised that having a professional network is like having a bank account. With a bank account, um, you need to make deposits so you don't deplete your funds when you make a withdrawal. Mm. And this is friendship or relationships. In you know that's how it is. Uh,
0: yeah, it's trust, and that's actually something I I learned in coaching as well. That's the trust you build, the rapport you build between another with another person is that you give and take and." Uh, that's hugely important to understand. Yeah. To build trust you actually have to give of yourself
1: as yeah. well. It's a balance sheet. So yeah. yeah. So by by saying thank you to that mm. person who wrote the blog post that helped you in your work, mm. you actually you actually put a little bit of money in your bank account. So yeah. if you do need to ask them a question in the future or you want to ask, you know, for job tips, so on, there is a little bit of mm. money to draw on there, or money. I mean I'm using the analogy. Mm. But you know, that's that's how it works. And um really good, um really good of Jessica to To bring this up and allow us to talk about it as well. I like it. Thank you for listening. Um, And we love to hear from you, which ties in nicely to um, Jessica's article about building connection networks. Um, If Twitter isn't your thing, then you can also email us. Um, You can reach both me and Per at hey at uxpodcast.com. And you can either use H-E-Y, the American Hey or the Swedish Hey with a J. H E J Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side. Knock, knock. Who's there? Cargo. Cargo who? Cargo. Beep, beep.